Well, good morning. Typically, when we try to schedule preaching, we try to avoid preaching on the same topic back to back. And one of the benefits of verse-by-verse exposition when you go through entire books of the Bible is when the text changes topics, you change topics. Well, last week, Pastor preached on a Christmas message from Micah 5. And ordinarily, we would not want to preach another Christmas message the very next week. And we especially wouldn't want want to preach a Christmas message the Sunday after Christmas, when Christmas has already passed. However, I've been working my way through the first chapter of John. And as the Lord would have it, my next passage, our passage for this morning, is John 1, 14 to 18. A passage that is on the incarnation. It's a passage that teaches the reason for the season. It's a Christmas passage. It's all about the incarnation. And so, we're going to have a Christmas message this morning. Now, I know when I was a kid, Christmas was always a really amazing day. It was always a really exciting day. There was just something magical about Christmas. I remember as a little kid saying, man, I wish every morning was Christmas morning. And it's so magical that you want to make it come faster, so you go to bed early the night before. It's the first time parents get their beds, their kids in bed early. And that excitement reaches its peak when you finally gather around the Christmas tree Christmas morning and you see your mom and dad or whoever it is who's passing out the gifts. And they've got a gift in their hand and they're making their way towards you. And they say, this one is for you. Other people were concerned about dignity. You know, appearing controlled and reserved. And they open their gifts carefully. They don't even rip the paper. They unfold their gift. Not me. I grabbed handfuls of frapping paper and just pulled them off. It's the one time of year mom allows you to make a mess in the living room. So I took full advantage. And I ruthlessly opened my gifts in my excitement. And for a few fleeting moments as a child, your eyes are fixed on that gift. And your heart is racing as you speedily work through the scotch tape to reveal the contents of that gift. And for the next few moments, that gift, whatever it is, becomes the most amazing thing to you. It's your whole world for just a few moments. And you cannot wait to play with it. The kids have to open the packaging, whatever it's in. They have to get that open to figure out all the ways they can use it and all the ways they can have fun with it. And they can learn all the little intricacies of that little gift. Everything else in the room seems to just vanish for a few moments as you look at this new favorite toy. And then it happens. You hear those dreadful words. You hear your name. This one is for you. And you look up and they've got another gift in their hand. And they're making their way towards you. And in seconds, you forget all about the previous gift. And you unceremoniously put that gift to the side, and now all of your attention is now focused on the new gift that's coming your way. Your first gift had been so thrilling only seconds ago. It was everything. And now it sits there getting covered in wrapping paper as you focus all of your attention on the new one. And after Christmas, you'll have one or two that were really important to you. I know I had one or two gifts every year that I would always have with me. They were so important, so special. But it never never ceased to amaze me that after only a few days or weeks, 
many, if not most, of those gifts were forgotten. They eventually ended up discarded in some box or a drawer. Or they somehow got lost in the forest that was my closet. The excitement and joy they once brought fades quickly. And in short time, that excitement is gone. And that's kind of the nature of sinful humanity. Things that once amazed us, thrilled us, excited us, now no longer do. And this is true of Christmas. The story of Christmas, the truths of Christmas, may not excite you like they once used to. Maybe right now you're a child, you still live at home with mom and dad, but all of your life you lived in a Christian home. You've heard the story a hundred times. You've heard the story of Jesus being born into the world a million times. And the Christmas story is now old news. Or maybe you've been a Christian for many decades. But the reality of Christmas just doesn't move you like it once did. Christmas might be over. In the coming days and weeks, and for some of us months, you'll be taking down all the decorations. Christmas might be over, but your, reason, your worship and your reasons to celebrate are not. The realities of Christmas should be enjoyed and celebrated, and God should be praised for them all year. Forget the Christmas tree. Forget the lights. Forget about the presents. Forget about the fat guy in a red suit and his reindeer and his elves. Forget all of that. Forget about the gifts wrapped under a tree. The greatest gift ever given was not wrapped in shiny, sparkly, well-decorated paper. It was wrapped in swaddling clothes. The greatest gift ever given was not placed beneath a well-lit tree. He was laid in a manger. The greatest gift is described in the opening line of our text this morning. When John writes, and the word became flesh. He begins it by saying the word. The last time John used this term was back in verse 1. There the word, Jesus Christ, is pictured as being eternal. That he existed from all eternity past. He existed prior to creation. Verse 3 says everything that was made was made by him and through him. And that nothing was created apart from him. And during all of eternity past... He lived in a perfect relationship with his father. He says, and the word was with God. That's a personal, intimate, loving fellowship. At the end of the verse 1, he says, the word was God. Paul says of Jesus in Philippians 2, he existed in the form of God. That is to say, he had all the outward manifestations of deity. He had the glory of God. He had the immense light radiating from his presence. He had anthems of praise from angelic choirs. Isaiah saw the glorified Christ and said he was sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of his robe filling the temple. Paul in Philippians 2 said that Jesus did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. He humbled himself. He left the glory that he had with his father. 
He veiled his own glory in flesh. John 1 verse 14 says he became flesh. He took on the human nature. His divine nature never changed. He remained the same glorious God he had always been. But he took on something he never had. Human nature. Paul affirms that his divine nature didn't change. In Philippians 2, he said that Jesus was found in the appearance of a man. His divine nature remained just as it was before. Only now it was veiled and shrouded in human flesh. The creator was now paired, joined with his creation. Truly God and truly man. The writer of the Hebrews says that Jesus had to be made like his brethren in all things. God himself became like you and me. Only he had no sin. And he experienced life as a human in a sin-filled world. John writes, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You can translate this differently. You can translate this as he tabernacled or he pitched a tent. He came and he lived among his own creation. He didn't just stop by for a visit and then leave again. He stayed and he dwelt here. He experienced the things that you and I experienced. He experienced the pain of losing a friend to death. In John 11, he wept for Lazarus. He experienced the pain of rejection. In John 6, when all of his disciples but the 12 left him. And he experienced the devastation of betrayal in Judas. He experienced the feeling of compassion and concern for others who are suffering. In Matthew 8, it says he was moved with compassion for a leper. He experienced the temptation of sin. Hebrews 4 says he was tempted in all things as we are, yet he was without sin. God left his eternal home. He left heaven, a place where there is no sickness, there is no disease, there is no suffering or pain, there is no loss, there is no sin. It's a place where everyone worships him continually and perfectly. And he left all of that. He came here to dwell among sinners. Ultimately, to be spit upon, mocked, cursed, and finally brutally murdered. And why did he do this? Why would he leave his home? So that he could suffer the wrath of God for you and me. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. This is what Christmas is all about. And if that does not amaze you, if that has lost its luster, or it has become boring or old news to you, if Christmas only excites you on December the 25th, if Christmas has become like those toys as a child, that within just a few days, it's no longer interesting to you. It's all but forgotten by the time you get to January then perhaps you need another look at Christmas. Perhaps the Lord knows we need to look at this topic just one more time. The gifts of God in the Incarnation are too numerous to count. However, in our passage this morning, John is going to point out three gifts that God has given in the Incarnation. 
gifts God has given to you. And these gifts should always excite you. These gifts should always amaze you. Let's look at the very first gift. A vision of divine glory. Look again at verse 14. He says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. John says, we saw. He didn't say, I saw. He didn't talk about a group over there who saw. He's speaking for himself and the other apostles. We saw. He's not telling you a story that he heard from some guy once. He's not telling you rumor, fiction, or myth. He's telling you what he and the other disciples personally witnessed. Peter said, we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. John doesn't use the term majesty. He says, we saw his glory. So that brings the question, how did John and the other apostles see his glory? And when he says that, what does he mean by that? Well, first they saw his glory in the works of Jesus. The works of Jesus are directly related to his glory. At the end of John chapter 2, you remember in John 2, you have the wedding feast of Cana. Jesus turns water into wine. At the end of that story, it says, This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Then at the tomb of Lazarus in John eleven forty. Martha comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, if you would have been here earlier, my brother would still be alive. And Jesus responds to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? She would end up seeing the glory of God in the miracle that Jesus would perform in raising Lazarus. Jesus displayed his glory through miracles. But there is another way you can understand this idea of they saw his glory. And that's through the transfiguration. In Matthew 19, Matthew writes, And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. This glory could refer to the brilliance and the radiance of the divine essence that was exposed on the Mount of Transfiguration. Luke says of Jesus, His face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. That is to say, his face and clothing became as white and as bright as lightning. Moses and Elijah appeared there with him. Luke 9 verse 31 says they were appearing in glory. When John says we saw his glory, he surely means he saw the glory of God in the face of Christ. He had a glimpse of the appearance of divinity. So when John uses this, he could be referring to all of these things. But he doesn't leave us guessing on what he means by glory. He continues to describe the glory in the next two phrases. There's two more phrases, and both of them describe the glory. The next phrase, glory as of the only begotten from the Father. The, the glory the disciples saw is glory as of the only begotten from the Father. And if you want to understand this, we need to stop and Take a moment to look at this phrase, only begotten. It's the Greek word monogenes. And this little phrase has caused some disputes throughout the church. And it's caused disputes because people have tried to twist it into meaning something it doesn't mean. To be the monogenes 
in one sense, in a biological sense, means to be the only biological child, the only biological son. Some cults today have asserted that the term refers to Jesus being the only biological son of God the Father. That Jesus was created. And they say Jesus was begotten of of the Father in the same way that Isaac was begotten of Abraham. The cults say that Jesus is the only biological son, the first created being of the Father. Now, we don't need to go into the details of how they get there. But a quick glance at the opening verse of John 1 will quickly dispel that. John 1.1 says that Jesus was creating was, cre- was existing before creation. John 1.1 says he has, cre- he has existed forever. He is eternal. And if Jesus existed from all of eternity, he could not have been the biological son of the Father. And the assertion that Jesus is in some way created is also destroyed in the opening couple of verses because John says all things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing came into being, not one thing. That's verse 3. Jesus did not come into being. He has always existed. And so whatever this phrase only begotten means, it clearly cannot refer to Jesus being a biological son or being a creation of some kind. So these cults have led a lot of people to abandon the phrase only begotten. Since they're twisting this phrase, let's come up with something new. And so others have translated this differently. If you have an ESV, it translates monogenes as the only son. The NIV translates it as the one and only. And they're doing this to avoid the wrong conclusions. Turn over to Hebrews 11 real quick. Their translation here as the one and only is not without biblical warrant. The term monogenes is used to describe someone who is the one and only or the unique child. And Hebrews 11 provides a great example of this. He uses the term in verse 17 of Hebrews 11. If you notice, he says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. Now, if we take this in a biological sense, it would be correct to say that Abraham fathered Isaac biologically. But if only begotten here means the only biological son, this doesn't work here, does it? Because Isaac was not the only biological son of Abraham. He had another son. He fathered a son with Hagar. That son's name is Ishmael. So we can't understand this as referring to biology. So in what sense is Isaac, the monogenes, the only begotten, the unique son of Abraham? Well, in the context of Hebrews 11, the writer is speaking about the promises of God made to who? Those promises were made to Abraham, and ultimately they were made to his son, Isaac. Ishmael was not the recipient of the promises. He was a biological son of Abraham. But he was not the unique son. He was not the son who would receive those promises. Those promises would go to Isaac. And in that sense, Isaac is the one and only son of Abraham. You can go back to John 1. 
the term monogenes does not refer, or monogenes or only begotten does not refer to Isaac's origins. It refers to him being the only one of his kind. He is the unique son. In biblical times, the adult son of a dignitary, dignitary was considered to be equal with his father. He had the same stature and the same privileges as his father. And the honor that you pay to the, son, the, the father is the same honor you would pay to the son. The son was viewed as being the same essence and nature as his father. He was the heir to all the rights and privileges of his father. He was considered equal with his father in every way that mattered. And in that sense, Isaac was the only begotten son of Abraham. In John 1, verse 14, Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. Not that he was created or that he was the biological offspring. He is the unique, the one and only Son. In that sense, he is of the same nature as his Father. The same essence. He has all the rights and privileges and all the glory of his Father. To say that Jesus is the only begotten is to say that Jesus is truly God. That he is of the same essence as God the Father. In fact, this term, only begotten, was used throughout history in church councils to defend the full deity of Christ. The Nicene Creed said, We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten. And then they define what they mean by that. That is, of the essence of the Father... God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. When John writes that they saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, he's saying that Jesus manifested the glory of God himself. He manifested the glory of God because Jesus is of the same nature as God. He is God. Hebrews 1 says of Jesus, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. You remember when Jesus told the disciples that he was going to go back, that he was going to leave them? Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus responds this way, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. He is the one and only Son of the Father because He is the only Son who shares the very essence and nature of God. John does provide another witness here. The witness is down in verse 15. Verse 15 is kind of a, inside of a parenthesis. Verse 15 says, John the Baptist testified about Him and cried out saying, This was He of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. John the Baptist recognized that Jesus was truly God. John the Baptist said of Jesus, he has a higher rank than I. In verse 27 of chapter 1, John the Baptist said, It is he, speaking of Jesus, who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. John the Baptist clearly had a high view of Christ. And he viewed himself as being inferior. 
question is why? Notice what he says next. He has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Now, if you're talking about biology, that's not true. John the Baptist was born first. So he can't be talking about biology here. But Jesus did exist first. Notice he said he existed before me. He understood John 1.1. Jesus is an eternal being. He has always existed. He recognized that Jesus was truly God. The apostles and John the Baptist all recognized that what they saw in Christ was the glory of God himself. They all understood that Jesus was God, equal with the Father. And John finishes his description of the glory at the end of verse 14. He says that the glory was full of grace and truth. John saw God's glory, and he primarily saw it through grace and truth. Notice he says the, grace was, the glory was full of grace. All of God's glory is characterized by grace and truth. In the incarnation, we get a vision of the fullness of His grace. We get a vision of the fullness of the truth of God. Remember back in Exodus, God goes up, Moses goes up to the mountain to see God. And he says to God, I pray, show me your glory. Do you remember what God said to him in response? He responded and said, I will make myself, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. Not my glory, all of my goodness will pass before you. And you will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Moses says, show me your glory. God responds, I will show you my goodness. And that goodness is characterized by grace and truth. When you find that out just a few verses later, Exodus 34, 5 and 6, God passes before Moses, and here's what he says. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Loving kindness and truth. The same two ideas expressed here in John 1. Just a different word. It's a Hebrew word. Those are the equivalents of grace and truth. Moses only got a glimpse of God's glory. The glory that John saw is described as the fullness of grace and truth. He did not just get a glimpse. You and I get to see all of his glory. We get to hear and know all about his grace and all of his truth. Jesus is God. He is the only begotten of the Father. He shares the Father's nature. And God is by nature full of grace. Grace refers to God's goodwill toward those who are suffering, but do not deserve His aid or His help. His grace is demonstrated in causing rain to fall on the just and the unjust. His grace is demonstrated when He provides food and clothing to men. His grace is seen throughout the Old Testament as he continually endured the constant rebellion of his own people, and yet he never destroyed them. His grace was displayed when he promised to forgive their sins, to no longer remember their transgressions, and then he promised 
to be their God. In the Old Testament, you only received a small glimpse of God's full grace. They had a limited vision of his glory. But in the incarnation of Jesus, you and I get a vision of the full glory of God. You and I get a vision of his grace and truth in salvation. His glory is visible in the grace Christ demonstrated in his life. In his indiscriminate healing ministries. Those who came to Jesus seeking healing, everyone who came to him, No one was denied because they were sinful. No one was told, hey, you can't come because you're not worthy. You didn't earn this gift. You didn't earn this healing. No, all of them were healed. No money required. They didn't pass a bucket to get the offering. No strings attached. Free, unmerited, undeserved kindness. At a level that no one had ever seen before. You see the grace in how Jesus responded to broken sinners. Repentant sinners that came to Christ always received mercy. Every sinner who came to Christ in repentance received a warm and friendly reception. Jesus said, do not hinder the children, let them come. And he said the same thing about sinners. He didn't ask for a sacrament to be administered. He didn't ask for some good works to be performed or for you to go through some religious ceremony. He didn't say you had to make an offering or or perform some sacrifice. The sacrifices of God are a contrite and broken heart. And everyone who came in that condition was given grace. You may not be a believer today. You may think that your sin is just too much. That you've offended God too greatly for Him to save you. That there is no grace for you. And if that is you, you just don't understand the grace of God. No, you do not deserve His kindness. None of us do. No, you cannot earn His kindness. It is grace. It cannot be earned or merited. It is given as a gift. Jesus said in John seven thirty seven, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. I think that's a reference back to Isaiah 55, where he says, You who have no money, you who have nothing, come, eat, drink. He said he will not turn any away. Every sinner can go to Christ and find grace. Yet his grace, that is his loving kindness, is paired with another quality. John says, full of grace and truth. Paul told the Colossians that the gospel was the word of truth. He told the Thessalonians, God has chosen you for salvation by faith in the truth. We are saved by believing the truth of the gospel. You can't reject the truth and still find salvation. And if you're going to go to Jesus, you must believe the truth about your own condition. You must believe that you are a sinner condemned and at enmity with God. A sinner who cannot admit that they are a sinner, a sinner who tries to cover up their sin to pretend that it's not really there or it's not that bad, is a sinner who will find no grace because they do not value the truth. 
To embrace the, God, the grace of God requires you to embrace the truth. You must believe what God has said about you. You must believe what God has said about the Lord Jesus Christ. God's grace and truth are most clearly displayed and seen in the person of Christ. John saw the glory of God in Christ. He saw the full expression of grace and truth. That's the first gift. A vision of divine grace. Uh, of, excuse me, of divine glory. The second gift of the incarnation. The fullness of grace. I promise my next two points are nowhere near that long. Look at verse 16. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. The fullest expression of God's divine glory was displayed in the person of Christ. At the end of verse 14, that glory is described as being full of grace and truth. John now says, For of his fullness we have all received. In verse 14, he was speaking from the perspective of the apostles and saying what the apostles saw. Now he's speaking from the perspective of every believer. And he's describing what all believers have received. Not only did the incarnation give us the clearest view of God's glory, but in the incarnation we have received the fullness of that glory. We have received the fullness of God's grace for salvation. All of our needs have been, been, have been met in Christ. Salvation is not a one-time event where Christ saves you in some obscure sense and then it's up to you to figure out how you're supposed to get into heaven. Jesus did not make salvation merely possible. He accomplished salvation fully. Every part of salvation from beginning to end has been accomplished by him. In Romans 5, verse 2, Paul said that through Christ we have received an introduction by faith into the grace in which we stand. 1 Corinthians 1, he says, By his doing, you are in Christ. You came to Christ because of him. And now that you are a believer, he has also provided grace for your growth. He has provided grace for your sanctification. He has provided everything you need to live the Christian life. In Ephesians 4, Paul said that he has provided pastors and evangelists and teachers for the equipping of saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. God knows that we need leadership. He knows that we need guidance. He knows that all of us need at some point help in our life, in our, in our godliness. And God has provided that for you as well. Paul told the Colossians, we proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man, with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. In the incarnation of Christ, you have received everything you need for a life of godliness. So much so that Paul in Colossians 2 said, in him you have been made complete. John then describes the fullness of grace in the incarnation. Look at the end of verse 16. He says, grace upon grace. One grace after another. 
when one grace is about to run out, God supplies another one to take its place. I need fresh grace from God every day. And on most days, I need his grace resupplied and resupplied continually. That's the grace that God provides. It's endless provision. An endless provision of loving kindness and mercy. You know, oftentimes in the Christian life, we experience trials and suffering, and we think, well, I just can't handle this. This is too much. I can't go through this. Or we find some sin in our life that we just can't seem to conquer. It's too big. I feel so inadequate. I can't do this. I'm ill-equipped. And we look at ourselves and we see how weak we are. And that leads to despair and hopelessness. Paul had such a problem. Remember, he had a thorn in the flesh. There's all sorts of theories about what this thorn was. What is, it a, is it a person, a demonic spirit, an illness? It's not the point. He had a thorn in his flesh. He had a problem and he went to God and he begged the Lord to take it away. And the Lord answered Paul this way. My grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. What Paul needed in that moment was not self-confidence. He didn't need someone to tell him how great he was and what a wonderful person he was. He didn't need to try harder or put into action some 12-step program. The Lord realized that what Paul needed was weakness. To see himself as insufficient and incapable. Then, when he recognizes how weak he is, when he recognizes how inadequate he is, then he will turn and trust in the fullness of God's grace. So often we get stuck in this loop of sin. We just keep falling back into the same sin over and over and over again. And we think the solution there is to just try harder, to work more, to put forward a little more effort, to pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps, and finally say no to that sin once and for all. We think that by staring in the mirror of introspection and self-examination, we're going to somehow conjure up the strength to overcome our sin and to conquer our flesh. And you need to recognize that's destined to fail. You need weakness. You need to recognize how weak you really are. I need to recognize that. He has not provided this grace to you in this abundance just because he thought it would help you out every now and then. He provided it because we need it. I need it every day. His grace is sufficient for you. It's sufficient to convert you. It's sufficient to sanctify you. Try acknowledging the weakness. Try admitting to the Lord that you can't do this in your strength. That if it's up to you, you're going to fail. Get your eyes off you. Stop looking at what you're doing or not doing and look to Christ. Because he has the grace. He has the strength. And he has given you the fullness of grace. Endless provision. 
He hasn't given you some. He hasn't given you most. He has given all of it. And it's available to you. All that you need has been provided for. John then explains this another way. Look at verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. This is an illustration of this idea of one grace replacing another. Notice he says the law was given through Moses. God gave the law to mankind. And that in and of itself is an act of grace. The law is a revelation of who God is. But the law also demonstrates man's inability. His inability to obey and to be pleasing to God. In James 1, he says the law is a mirror. This mirror doesn't display your physical attributes. It doesn't show you your physical qualities. This mirror shows your moral and spiritual condition. The mirror is not enough to bring salvation. The law doesn't bring salvation. It brings condemnation. In John 5, verse 45, Jesus told the Pharisees, Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. The Pharisees were depending upon their ability to keep the law. They were looking to the law of Moses as being capable of bringing about salvation. But it was through the law that God began to reveal himself. And he began to reveal his plan for salvation. Even though the law can't save you. It's not the full demonstration of God's grace. It was the first one. No one in the Old Testament was saved because they kept the law. They were saved because of the future work of Christ. Romans 3, God passed over the, uh, the sins previously committed. God patiently endured until their sins could be dealt with by Jesus in the incarnation. The grace of God was not absent in the Old Testament, but it was never fully realized. The fullness of His grace and the truth of His plan for salvation is realized only in Christ. Verse 14 again, he says, Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. The law served its purpose. Paul said it was a tutor to point us to Christ. The grace fully realized in Christ was, has taken the place of the grace of the law. One grace of God has replaced another. He gave us the law to show us our sinfulness. To show us our inability he gave us the law to point us to Christ so that Christ would fulfill the law on our behalf. All grace is found in Christ and nowhere else. There is no grace outside of him. That's why in Acts 4 they said there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. If you want grace, you must go to Christ. You need to understand that you cannot be saved by keeping the law. And why can you not be saved by keeping the law? Because you've already broken it. I've already broken it. Now you need to be liberated from your sin. Now you need your offenses to be wiped out. You need your guilt to be removed. 
You need grace and forgiveness, but the law does not provide that. The law holds you accountable for all of your sin. The law does not provide forgiveness. Freedom from eternal consequences of sin is found only in Christ. Acts 13, 39, Paul said, Through him, that would be Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. You cannot be saved through the law. Salvation is all of grace. It is all free, unmerited, and undeserved. The incarnation gives the gift of the fullness of grace. No matter how much sin you have, God has the grace to forgive that sin, to reconcile you to himself. He has the grace to help you overcome that sin once you are a believer. So you do not have to live in sin. What's the response to this? You should see this grace and you should respond, if grace is such, do I really want to go back and sin again? This grace should lead us to want to be more holy, to be more pure. And he has provided everything you need for that. His grace not only provides for the removal of sin, but also provides righteousness. He gives you the perfect life of Christ, his perfect obedience. You can't keep the law, I can't keep the law. The grace of Christ provides all the righteousness. And then he preserves you in your faith. Paul asks, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? God's grace is greater than all of your sin. You cannot outsin the grace of God. And if you're a believer, and if you've experienced this grace, you would never want to. So we've looked at two gifts given in the Incarnation. One, a vision of divine glory. Two, the fullness of grace. And three, a clear revelation of God. Look at verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten of God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. John says, no one has seen God. Men in the Old Testament saw visions of the pre-incarnate Christ, but no one has ever looked upon God the Father. First of all, he's a spirit. He's invisible. And so he can't be seen by you. Secondly, for a sinner to look directly upon God would be a death sentence. When Moses asked to see God, God responded, You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. For a sinner to look upon the face of God is death. Jesus said the same thing in John 6, Not that has anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father, speaking of himself. Jesus is the only one who has ever looked upon the Father. John 1.1 says he was, in a, he was with God. That is to say, he was in a face-to-face -face relationship with God. This is an intimate, personal fellowship with God. 
It is impossible for us to have that kind of fellowship with him. What does that relationship mean? That is to say, Jesus knows the Father intimately. He knows him perfectly. Notice how John describes this intimacy. He says that Jesus is the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. The term here for bosom is, used, is the same term used in John 13, 13. When John leaned on the bosom of Christ, it refers to the chest. In ancient banquets, they would lay beside the table, and the guest of honor would be said to be in the bosom of the host. In Luke 16, 23, Lazarus is in the bosom of Abraham. To be in someone's bosom signifies the closest possible relationship. In fact, this little term here, bosom, goes even further. It can refer to something being stored in the folds of an overgarment. They'd have a garment that comes over and there'd be a fold right here and they can put something in there like a pocket. Jesus is said to be in the bosom of the Father. He has the most intimate, devoted relationship with his Father. He knows him perfectly. He has perfect knowledge of God. This is a knowledge we cannot obtain to on our own. Matthew 11, verse 27, Jesus said, No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. You cannot know God without Christ. True knowledge and revelation of the Father is only possible to those who know Christ. Mohammed cannot bring anyone to God. He cannot help anyone have a relationship with God. Buddha did not know God. He could not help anyone commune with God. Joseph Smith did not know the Father. And he cannot help you get a relationship with the Father. All religions that point you to someone or something other than Christ as a means of knowing God are false religions. They are lies. Only Jesus, the only begotten of the Father, knows the Father. And John here says that Jesus has explained him. This term explained is the Greek word from which we get exegesis. Exegesis is what is the method we use to interpret Scripture. It's how we explain what the text means. Jesus exegetes the Father. He interprets and he explains the Father. God the Father is beyond our comprehension. For man to know God means that God must condescend. He must come down to our level. And he did. He did so in the Incarnation so that we could see God, so that we could see his nature, that we could see his divine essence. And through the incarnation, he has given us gifts. He's given us a vision of divine glory. In the incarnation, we see the clearest view of God's glory, his grace and his truth. Through the incarnation, he's given us the fullness of grace. He showers us with grace upon grace. He gives all the grace that you need. Finally, in the Incarnation, he has given us a clear revelation of God. Because of the coming of Christ, you can know the Father. You can have a relationship with the Father. 
our sins that used to separate us from him, those have been removed. The enmity that once existed has now been reconciled. You can have a restored and renewed relationship with your creator, not because of your obedience and not because of your good works, but because God became man. Because Jesus, truly God and truly man, went to the cross and suffered the righteous wrath of the Father. And he did it for your sins. He did it for my sins. If you don't know Christ this morning, these gifts can be yours. Turn from your sin. Run to Christ. There is more mercy and grace than you will ever need. And for believers, these gifts are available to you. They're yours all year long. These gifts should excite you and cause you to worship. You can celebrate Christmas any time of the year. You don't have to just have a Christmas tree up. These are gifts that are yours all the time. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word. We do thank you for Christ, for the incarnation, for the grace that you have given to us in him and only in him. Father, you know those here this morning that are believers, and we ask that you would help us to, to depend more on God's grace to see more of our salvation as a gift, unearned and unmerited, and that we would respond in love to that gift. And for those that are not believers this morning, Lord, we would ask that uh, you would show them in their heart their condition, and that they would see Christ as being gracious and merciful, providing all that they need to come to you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.